first reading is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, continuing to chapter 6, verse 6, which can be found on page 1204. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he had suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. If we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of the faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The second reading is from Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 20. Hebrews 6. Continuing at verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater than for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, 
and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. The storm may roar around me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me. And can I be dismayed? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that whatever our circumstances, you are round about us, and therefore we cannot be dismayed for long. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life can be very uncertain, can't it? On Friday in the general election, against all the predictions of the pollsters and political commentators, brackets, yaboo to them, the Conservatives returned to government with an outright majority. No one had foreseen this. I don't think even the Prime Minister did. He looked surprised. Because for weeks we've been told we were facing another coalition government, with days taken up after the election, working out who would make up the coalition. And they were all proved wrong. Life can be very uncertain. In July 2002, my wife Trisha and I were in America, and that week the New York Stock Market Index, the Dow Jones, plunged hundreds of points. America was abuzz with the fall of Enron, the Arthur Anderson accounting firm, and WorldCom. And similar stories were coming out almost daily. And on the 17th of July, the New York Times blazed this headline across its front page. Is uncertainty the only certainty? Is uncertainty the only certainty? And that uncertainty has continued. With the fall of Lehman Brothers in 2008, the resulting near collapse of the West's economic system. Did you know that we were only half an hour away from the automatic machines not being able to issue money? Natural disasters like the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011 and more recently the terrible earthquake in Nepal. And of course people are looking for answers and certainty. And sadly they don't always find that from Christians and the church. Too often church leaders share their doubts and their uncertainties. But that is not what we find in the Bible. In particular, in the letter to the Hebrews, which we're currently studying. Would you have it in front of you on page 1204? And the advantage of looking at two chapters is you can follow a theme through, but it means that we have to dot around a bit. So it really is a help if you have it in front of you. And the sermon notes have the headings on the back of the yellow sheet, so you can see uh, later again. Four. 
Far from being uncertain, the writer of the Hebrews shows in chapter 6, verse 17, how God himself wants to make the unchanging nature of his purpose for humanity very clear. God wants his followers, you and me, to live confidently in his presence. And that's why again and again you'll read phrases like the encouragement in chapter 4, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Chapter 10, he writes that we are to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Confidence is not triumphalism, an arrogant view of superiority that we are right and others wrong, nor is it presumption. For the path that Jesus took to provide an anchor for ourselves, chapter 6, verse 19, to enable us to feel firm and secure, was a path that led to suffering. And the Hebrews were finding it hard to follow Jesus. They were facing severe persecution, including confiscation of their property and imprisonment. Nor has this changed. Today, many Christians in many parts of the world also face imprisonment and even death for acknowledging Jesus. So what can this passage offer us by means of encouragement? How can God motivate us, not just to keep going, but to rise above where we are now? Firstly, and here's my first heading, remember what Jesus did for you and me. Remember what Jesus did for you and me. In fact, the writer underlines this throughout his letter. Again and again, he makes us refocus away from ourselves and our difficulties and on to Jesus. That's what we saw in chapter 1 with those wonderful first three verses which discuss Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, as co-creator, and as the means of our salvation. Now here in chapter 5, after showing how Jesus is our great high priest, a theme he's going to return to later, the writer highlights a new aspect, namely the inner struggles that Jesus went through in order to secure our eternal destiny. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, these verses refer to that night in Gethsemane. And interestingly, in this church, in the east window, that is what that east window depicts, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, as Luke records in his Gospel, chapter 22, Jesus cried out to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And Luke also describes, and remember that Luke is a doctor, how Jesus was in such anguish that sweat poured to the ground like drops of blood. Jesus learned obedience, verse 8, not that he was ever disobedient, but this suffering was so terrible that it called on him to obey to an extent he had never before experienced. By his obedience to God, the humanity of Jesus was therefore completed, verse 9, made perfect. And so, as a result, 
he became the source of eternal salvation for all who called on him. Can you imagine why Jesus asked God to take the cup from him? Because he knew what lay ahead. He knew that he would not just suffer a horrible death physically, but he was going to take on his shoulders the sin of the whole world. And that would mean separation from God himself. That's why the cry from the cross is so dreadful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt God forsaken? Have you ever felt abandoned by God to the extent that you wonder if he's even there? Have you ever realized just what Jesus went through that you might have eternal life? Life with God forever. Until you have, you will never be anything more than a half-hearted disciple, tempted like the Hebrews were to give up on Jesus when the going gets tough. On my visit to the Holy Land some years ago, I visited a small chapel on the Mount of Olives, and that chapel commemorates Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and its future destruction. And from the chapel, you have that famous panoramic view of Jerusalem, the golden dome of the rock, the walls surrounding the city. What moved me deeply was the thought and the realization that Jesus had a choice. That's the point of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had a choice a real choice. He could have disobeyed God, and who could blame him as we consider the awful price he would pay? Or he could do what he did and go through that dreadful agony of being God-forsaken on our behalf. What unbelievable humility. What incredible obedience What amazing love for you and for me. If you're finding it hard to be a disciple of Jesus, it may be that you need God to show you again what it costs Jesus to secure your eternal destiny so you understand the full force of what Jesus did for you, how much you are loved. The writer to the Hebrews brings us back to Jesus and again and again because we tend to think that it's all about us. When in fact, it's all about him. The second motivator to keep us going is this. God's purpose for your soul. God's purpose for your soul. As I've said before, the Hebrews were finding it very hard to keep going. Now, God says through the writer, no wonder. He was blunt, Yorkshireman, you know. He was very direct. You've hardly grown spiritually at all. If they were looking for a bit of soft sympathy, they didn't get it. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. You are babies. 
Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You haven't grown up. You're still on milk when you should have been on solid. And as a result, and interesting this, you cannot distinguish good from evil. Babies can't. Spiritual babies can't. The writer is like a spiritual health visitor. Um, When our first child was born, the health visitor came. Unfortunately, Trisha was out. I was left literally holding the baby, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the health visitor. They come unannounced. And Trisha said, oh, she should have made an appointment. I said, that's the point. They come when you least expect them. And then they look at you very toughly, and they decide, is this baby doing all right? I jiggled Claire very carefully. Unfortunately, I passed. You see, they're checked regularly to see if they're flourishing and thriving. And if they're not, action has to be taken. They don't mess around. What is his prescription? They need someone to teach them the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Verse 12. And by the way, look in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what he regards as elementary. It includes teaching on repentance, faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, when on the last day Jesus will return, and all will rise to face God. Unbelievers will go to eternal punishment, Christians to be with Jesus forever. Well, that's quite a list. How are you doing? God may want to say the same to us today. Have you and I grasped all the above? Because in the writer's mind, these are basic truths or doctrines. They are foundational. Take, for example, eternal judgment and the return of Christ. Lord Shaftesbury, that great 19th century reformer who did much to legislate against unjust working practices caused by the Industrial Revolution, also founded or supported 33 philanthropic organizations, including many Christian ones such as the British and Foreign Bible Society, the London City Mission that we link to here, and the YMCA. What was the motivation for his tireless service? He once said this, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. And the writer to the Hebrews had a similar thought in mind. Look at chapter 4, verse 13, when he said, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you constantly and consciously live each moment as if it is your last and you are about to give account to God, you'll find it much easier to be motivated in following Jesus. It's rather like that final exam, isn't it? You think, oh my goodness, I have to revise. Even boys wake up suddenly and realize with exams coming, they better do some work. Not like a friend of ours whose son in January was still not revising for his A-levels. And he said to his son, you've got to get going. And he said, but dad, I don't want to peak too soon. (laughs) 
And then in order to motivate them further, the writer gives them a warning and an encouragement. And the warning comes in chapter, four verse, chapter 6, verse 4. And in the words of one commentator, this is one of the most terrible passages in Scripture. Look at verse 4. It's impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, theologians have discussed and argued over this for years. Basically, there are two views. The Arminian view, which states that a true believer can lose his or her salvation, and the Calvinist view, which states that a true Christian will never lose their salvation. And Calvinists believe that there are those who once appeared to be part of the church, but by their rejection of Christ have shown themselves to lack real faith. They're not genuine. Those in this last group may have been enlightened, verse 4, that is, they've been taught and have understood the basis of faith, even, verse 6, publicly repented. But they have not borne fruit, and so were never real Christians at all. And this is a very solemn thought. These people, by their disloyalty, are crucifying the Lord Jesus all over again and bringing shame to his name. Well, that's the warning, says God to the Hebrews. Make sure you're not one of those people. But then he comes to encouragement, because the writer is sure his listeners are not in that category. Why? Since he has seen in their lives the evidence of salvation. Look at verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I don't think God ever means us to have periods in our lives when we don't grow spiritually. There may be times when it feels as if we're making no progress at all. Other times when we have, so to speak, spiritual growth spurts. And incidentally, don't confuse spiritual maturity with mere increased Bible knowledge or the length of time you've been a Christian or the amount of church activity in which you're engaged. How can we grow spiritually? Let me mention briefly three things. What Gail MacDonald describes, firstly, as the need to tend the fire. Tend the fire. I'm almost a pyromaniac. I love open fires. The lesson I've learned is you've not succeeded once you've got it going. You have to watch it. You have to put on enough wood and enough coal at the right time. And when Gail MacDonald says we need to tend the fire, what she means is you need to make time each day on your own to pray and read your Bible and develop your relationship with Jesus. No one else can do that. You may not see much difference at the time, but over the days, weeks, and months, you're slowly, bit by bit, building up capital in your spiritual bank. Building up spiritual capital in your bank. What a wonderful investment that will last for eternity. You see, if Tom... I can't see where Tom is, but if Tom doesn't practice one day, nobody will know. He doesn't practice for two days, doesn't practice for a week, a month. We'll get to know. In our relationship with Jesus, every day, every day. 
Secondly, the same is true about coming to church. We need to be regular and intentional. If friends want to visit, tell them to do so either after church, because you cannot miss being here. So important. We're talking about your spiritual health. Love to see you. In our family, there was a tense moment soon after I came to a new personal faith, because on Christmas Day, I wanted to go to church. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, I must go to church on Christmas Day. The whole family routine was upset. Inconvenient time. Well, you know how it is on Christmas Day. Better still, ask your friends to come to church with you. Thirdly, develop your ministry. God has uniquely equipped each one of us with gifts, experience, and talents, all of which can be used in ministry for him. Ask God to show you what your ministry is to be. During Lent, we thought about the front lines where God wants us to serve him. If you're a young mother, it's likely to be with other young mothers. Babies is great for that. Crazy busy. I wish I could go to that. If you work in a hospital, in the city, in parliament, in fashion, your front line is the colleagues you work with day after day. Tend the fire. Come to church. Develop your ministry. And make sure these are all part of your everyday life. And here's my third point. The third motivator to keep you going is this. And it's the greatest news of all. God's plan for your future. The hope that lies ahead. Look at verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. There may be times in our lives when all that we had counted on suddenly becomes very insecure, either through redundancy, health issues, or some tragedy hitting us. Such times it can be very tempting not just to drift away from Jesus, but to feel we're being so tossed about on a sea of circumstances over which we have no control. God, however, has provided us with an anchor, an anchor for our soul that will keep us firm and secure when everything around us seems to be in turmoil. And that anchor is the hope to which we have been called. And this hope is very different from the ordinary sense, like, I hope the electrician will come when he promised, I fear he won't. No, the Christian hope is a certainty, the sure and certain knowledge that if we've committed our life to Jesus Christ, we have inherited eternal life. Heaven awaits us. Death is no longer a full stop, it's a comma. And as we walk through it to the place that is our real home, I've said it before, so wonderful. There's mission agencies, missionaries who've died. They've said, gone home. We have dual citizenship, and our real home is not here. It's in heaven. We all need encouragement. And in these last few verses of chapter 6, we read that God wants us to be clear about what he has promised God wants us to be certain that we will receive it. Yes, we live in very uncertain times, and no, in response to the headline in the New York Times, 
Uncertainty is not the only thing that is certain. Max Lucado writes movingly of what ultimately awaits the Christian in the future. Listen to these words, because they're so encouraging. You may not have noticed it, but you are closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken, each breath is a page turned, each day is a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been. And before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp and enter the city. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. Let us pray. A moment of quiet as we reflect on what it is that God wants us not only to remember but to act upon. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. In uncertain times, you are certain. Your promises are certain. Thank you for the promise of heaven. We pray that you'll keep our perspective clear, that we will focus again on what Jesus did for us. We will be humbled by his obedience. We will read your word, spend time with you, learn of you together, encourage one another as we look to the future. And may that be so encouraging because you're the God who goes with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.